Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Living on the lightest stage approaches the unreal. For those who think and feel in touch with some reality beyond the gilded cage. Hey, everybody, it's me, your Tom Sawyer wizard, Holden McNeely. Ah! We are the priests of the temple of Syrinx. My guitar is a guitar. I found a guitar in a guitar cave. Ah, oh, the guitar Fuck cave. Guitar. We rule the earth. Fuck this guitar. Interesting. Oh, no, they didn't like my guitar. Guess I'll die <laughs> under a tree. We have assumed direct control of the Solar Federation. Uh, Bruiser, <laughs> guys, rock and roll. When you hear when you hear these words, nothing is better than the sounds of rock and roll music, and that's why Rush is the topic. Of I'm a broken man, Holden. This was too much, too fast, too amazing. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm giving uh, Coheed and Cambria flashbacks. The the laboriousness of nerd rock is uh, something to behold. I mean, you can't just. Yeah, you can't just like dabble in this. You know what I mean? It's it's like you get into a catalog like this and it's so expansive and so full of story and of I mean, and then later and then the phases of this band and when you have a band like this prolific, I mean, at points I was like, is this a two-parter? I don't think it is. I think we can cover the whole thing in this one. I will say this, and I want to thank Rush for this. I was very surprised, assuming, you know, oh my God, they have these like 20-minute long songs and this, that, and the other. I was like, these albums must just be epically long. Most albums are like 35 minutes long, a nice little package, yep. throw it on for a run, get to digest the whole thing very easily, like outside of the live uh obviously the live albums and stuff like those are obviously a bit juicier, but man, what an unbelievable catalog. I mean, moving pictures, two, one, one, two permanent waves, even some of their lesser um, regarded albums critically, or even within the band are still so solid with like stuff like caress of steel. Even when they went keyboard, full keyboard asshole in the eighties, I actually was I was expecting to like really just bounce off of those albums and I 
kind of enjoyed it. I defy you to listen to Red Sector A and feel nothing. <laughs> to just be like, uh, no, I'm not crying because of this heartfelt uh, expression of what it means to survive in the most horrific of circumstances. Right. Uh, keyboards are lame. I don't like this. You can't. You're not a robot. You're not immune. I, you know, I, I Rush has always kind of been around, been a part of things. For me, you you can't not have heard so many of the songs playing, even just on fucking college radio or whatever, you know what I mean, or what have you. And you you forget almost how many songs Rush had that unbelievably got a radio play, to be quite honest, in a lot of ways, just because of the le- sheer length of the songs, because of the 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 content of the songs being very like fantasy inspired, especially earlier in the career, uh, you know, and then. Uh, on top of that, you, of course, have the, I think, a lot of the reason for the season for people when it comes to Rush is the drumming. And Neil Peart and his incredible abilities that are just so mind-blowing. Holden, Holden, I hate to do this to you. I hate to do this to you. Please forgive me. I've been reminded constantly since we started this research from the moment we did the Sunday study session where tons of Rush fans <laughs> came out of the woodwork and helped to guide my feeble baby brain. Despite how it's pronounced in every single time anyone has ever referenced him, the man's name is Neil Peart. Peart? It's Peart. Everyone, I've never heard a single exactly. person say that. Even, I, I watched the documentary, I didn't. I never heard his name said like that. It's <laughs> Peart. Not okay. Peart. To the point where uh, during the making of I Love You Man, they shot a funnier Die video with Jason Segel and... Um, uh, Paul Rudd as the, their characters from the movie and Neil Peart says to them as part of this like extra sketch, like uh, actually it's, it's Peart and <laughs> Paul Rudd's like, no, it's not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, agree to disagree, but uh, I will say in, in di- diving into, I mean, first of all, his life is so unbelievable and so tragic and so fascinating. I love too, that he is, that person that I I feel like I've come into contact with at this point as well, like we've even done meet and greets, Jake, at this point for live shows, and so I totally get his standpoint. I'm uh, I'm one of the ones who's down to do the meet and greets and kind of stuff, but I love that he also you know stays true to himself in that sense as well. He's not a big people person. He just like puts his head down and does his incredible work and never stopped uh, training and, and getting better and educating himself, which is so impressive because he was still trying to improve, even though he was even at the point where he was regarded as the best and uh, watching his solos and the live shows, just taking percussion to another level. And, you know, because I've heard so many people who love drums talk about Neil Peart in a way that is, you know, so reverential. And that's the interesting thing about Rush. I feel like people come to it from a technical standpoint. Mm -hmm. And then also people come to it from like a, I mean, how do you describe the sound, Jake, of Rush? So this is where (laughs) things get like a little bit, this is where the topic gets really interesting for me. Because um, what makes a nerd band? Sure. What makes a band uh, like, more nerdy than anything else. Be be Canadian, step one. Canadian helps. Canadian <laughs> definitely helps. But I think a part of what makes Rush uh, a Wizard and the Bruiser topic band is that there is a level of um, sincerity mixed with a kind of spaciness where kind of like they might be giants, 
or gorillas or Weird Al Yankovic. Wow, these just sound like all topics we probably have covered in the past, by the way. You should definitely check out all of those episodes. Like, if you are young, you are nervous, you maybe have confidence issues, maybe you have social anxiety that is undiagnosed, but what you're an indoor kid, all the things that define a nerd and the nugget of like awkwardness that like kind of sets you on the nerd's uh, pathway. Rush doesn't really talk about like going to the club with your honey and like seeing the fine girls at the party and getting with like, they talk about philosophy and free will and like all these. I mean, I remember my nerd ass nerd friend getting really into Ayn Rand for a little while, uh, for sure, which is so funny, like back in high school. And so, of course, right, you know, and, and their we'll early into, work. We'll get into that. Yeah, yeah. But, but so, you know, their early work is, is yeah, based on stuff like that. And, and even in, I mean, great documentary, by the way, on Rush. It's on Netflix. Even people were talking in that, they were like, these fuckers got me reading books <laughs> <laughs> because I'd see what this stuff was based on and I'd go out and pick up, you know, the fountainhead. But even though, like, Rush didn't, sing about things that like, you know, whatever the popular kids were aspiring to be, there was still so much depth in the musicality, in the instrumentation, in the arrangements. Uh, each, you know, songs would kind of take all these weird twists and change in the middle of it and then come back. Uh, there was a lot to like ingest. And as the band went on and stuck around for decade after decade after decade, every new nerd that like kind of got turned on to it or kind of got clued into it by another nerd from a previous generation, found decades of material to pour through. It's it's kind of like a doorway. And I feel like in this week of research, I went from an outsider that just was like, yeah, yeah, the nerd music. Literally the most prominent Rush like references is always in stuff like I Love You Man or uh, you know, making fun of Fry in that episode of Futurama where he talks about how he was a loser on Saturday nights with a two liter bottle of Shasta and his all rush mixtape <laughs> or in family guy, they always make rush references. Um, I remember, uh, uh, in the, again, not to reference the doc too much, but I might, cause there was a really good doc, but the drummer of Foo fighters was like, yeah, I couldn't really throw on caress of steel for the ladies. Uh, that, that was more of a, a mono. That was a, a one dude record there. Solo, solo time. I mean, the <laughs> joke is like, oh, you know, Rush fans are like all male. Even the band themselves will be like, hey, I counted 12 girls this this uh, <laughs> this concert. Like, whoa, a new record. But even just within our own very small community, tons of women came out from the woodwork and talked about how much the band means to them. And I think it is the sincerity mm-hmm. of the band. They're like, you know, they believe in, you know, freedom and taking care of the planet and trusting yourself and getting through hard times. Uh, their relationship with their audience is incredibly intimate. They produce tons of content, tons of documentaries, uh, tons of meet and greet. Like, you know, they are a live touring band. Uh-huh. That's what defined them. Uh, and, you know, it's everyone has a personal. Th- so like, there's an emotional depth. There is a connection. Hell, you know, if you're a big enough fan, like Getty Lee, Neil Peart, and Alex Lifeson are basically your dads. Mm-hmm. Like each of them bring their own dad energy. Major dad energy for sure. And by the way, those are the only three members of the band. I have to straight up say this, and maybe this makes me sound like an idiot. 
I did not realize it was just three guys. That's I, insane. If you had asked me before I started this week, like how many people were in the band rush, I would have said at least five, just based on the sound that they generate. And so, yeah, it, for, that it's just Alex Lifeson, Getty Lee, and Neil Peart. That is it, right? And, and and what they're able to create is kind of incredible as a trio and prog rock. The uh, prog metal. Prog metal. Prog metal. There's a... There's a difference. I had to watch a 40-minute YouTube video about it. Neo Peart Prog Metal. Neo Peart Prog Metal. Ugh, I can't even say it too many times. Well, anyways, let's get into it. There's too much to cover. These people had too big of a career. Anytime I see a career this long-lasting going into a, a week of research, I'm like, oh, boy. I, d- I just <laughs> want to stress that we came into this blind. Mm-hmm. We were not Rush fans going into this, and so this is us trying to communicate all the important things we've discovered I mean, dear, I didn't even realize, like, there are bands, there, there's, like, songs like uh, A Passage to Bangkok uh-huh. and stuff that, like, great song. I didn't even, you know, in just played in the background in the backseat of my parents' station wagon on the classic rock radio that I had no idea was Rush. Yeah. Like, even be, you know, it's so, I'm so overwhelmed, uh, I'm a little hungover, <laughs> and God, these guys just rock out so much. Here we go, Rush, a Canadian rock band formed back in 1968, whose members include Getty Lee on bass, vocals, and keys, Alex Lifeson on guitars, and Neil Peart on drums. The band is known for its complex compositions and songs based in sci-fi, fantasy, and philosophy, and their sound went from a blues-inspired rock sound, Led Zeppelin, or Led Zeppelin knockoff band, into the realm of progressive rock during their run, which incorporated lots of synthesizers. Ooh, when we get to the 80s. Oh, the synthesizers. Oh, the moogs flying at you left and right. Uh, but let's talk about the early years. This is uh, way back when. Alex Lifeson was born Alexander um, a word. Zivo Genovic. Alexander. Zinajivan. <laughs> yeah, Zivo Genovic, which means son of life in Serbian. And that is how we ended up with Lifeson as his stage name. He started out on the viola, which he soon ditched for the guitar at the age of 12. And his influences, of course, all the great rockers in the 60s, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Pete Townsend, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page. I mean, it was just such a hot time for rock and roll. I kind of wish we were able to live it a little bit. I mean, it just seems so fun. Just the the narcotic high of having like the electric guitar come into its own, uh. having like a literal new sound kind of like that is open, like it's open season to experiment and figure out what you can do with it. Right. Like it's gotta be so magical. Yeah. And then watching it just drift off to all these different places from a blues rock country sound into that progressive metal that these guys get to. I mean, it it just really, it's like, it's almost like watching like the, the Wright brothers make the plane and then jump to the moon landing not too much, too much later. It's like just inc- evolving at such an incredible pace. At school, he meets a drummer, and that drummer's name is John Rutsey in 1963. And they decided to form a band called The Projection, which broke up after not too long. But John and Alex decided to move forward together. And after getting a gig, they decided they needed a new name. It was John Rutsey's brother, actually, who suggested Rush. And yes, that is drummer's name is not Neil Peart. They do have a different drummer for that first album, which makes a lot of sense. If you're I, One of the fun things about doing episodes like these is I also get to experience a band's disc- discography in order. Mm-hmm. And it's so fascinating. And it, I mean, obviously, they get Neil Peart in for, the, uh, for Fly By Night, their second album. I mean, the difference between the first and second album, especially the drumming, is so insane. Well, it's hilarious because, uh, like, 
Rutsy is almost the the front man yes. for this version of Rush. Yeah, like it's weird. he's charismatic, he's handsome. And if there's one thing Rush has never been called, it is a handsome band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think someone uh, said they were the most unphotogenic band ever. Don't worry. They they figured out that great uh, all-white kimono <laughs> and that, that really helped them look cool. Yeah, yeah. They definitely re- regretted that. But Rutsy was a rock star. Yeah. He's great. He was great in interviews, looked good uh, in tight pants. Like, it was Rutsy's show during this early kind of uh, more straight-up rock and roll Era. Yes, I mean, definitely c- kind of going for the Zeppelin thing. Rutsy's brother is who suggested Rush as the name, short and to the point. Great name for a band, honestly. Alex Lifeson said, I met Getty when we were uh, 13 years old in our first year in junior high school. We were aliens in a class of conformity and we became best friends, which I think is very funny because Getty referred to Lifeson as a, quote, teacher's pet when he met him, <laughs> but also funny. So he had a, quote, blast together. We cracked each other up and we understood where where each other came from. Culturally, we were sons of Eastern European immigrants who had left Europe after the Second World War to start a new life in Canada. So we were, both of us, a little bit different. And we'll talk uh, in a second about the uh, Lee's parents uh, and everything and uh, what they survived. But before I get into that, I'll just say that you see that in the modern footage of them. You see that in that relationship that they had as boys joking around together and just totally getting on in a humor way. Uh, much less uh, like musically, it, it was there from the very beginning and never went away. It seems like I love watching them as old men interact with each other, older men interacting with each other because you see the boys there that just are ha- still having a blast, and and it's great that that lasted for years. Watching so many like behind the scenes footage, so much documentary footage, so much uh, interviews with these guys. Yeah, uh, Lifeson and Getty Lee will always like hang out together, yeah. always do uh, press together. And in general, have that like kind of old friend connection. And then Pierre's just in the corner, like spinning his sticks and not talking to anybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to the point where I thought there was like some kind of massive fallout that had happened. And like, no, it's just like they're the they're the chatter boxes. Yeah. And per like if he if you want to corner him and talk about the exotic old growth wood that his drums are made out of, yeah. then sure, he'll get into <laughs> it. But or motorcycling. He'll get into it. But going back to it, Getty Lee's parents were Jewish Holocaust survivors from Poland, met each other at 13 years old at a work camp, later found each other after the war ended, and got married and immigrated to Canada, which is so fucking wild. Unfortunately, Getty's father died when he was quite young. He uh, himself was a very skilled musician, which inspired Getty to both get into music and understand life is short and one must make the most of it. Gives him the idea that like, let's like really take this thing to the limit. Also, by the way, his actual name is Gary. And I love this little anecdote. His mother's pronunciation of his name in her accent is what led his friends. Getty. Yeah. Getty. Getty. Come up to dinner. Getty. Getty. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why he's Getty, not Gary, which is uh, interesting. Lee was inspired by the earliest forms of prog rock bands like Cream, The Who, Procol Harum. I mean, this is a while as their careers uh, going to continuing to just get more and more into that progressive sound. Uh, in in music, and uh, even when in different bands for a spell, Lifeson and Lee would get together after school most days and just jam together for a couple of hours. Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Paul Rutney eventually start to play real gigs. Once they get enough material, 
And once they get enough covers under their belt, this is around 1971. Lee said, I was a pretty shy kid. I didn't really want to be a front man. I was just the one with the best voice or the most appropriate voice. So stepping out in front was not a natural thing for me. I had to learn how to deal with it. John used to announce the songs and he was totally good at it. Really funny, a real acerbic wit. And in those early days, John was the leader of the band to all intents and purposes. He was a very opinionated guy about music, about what he thought the band should be, how we should look. And that's going to prove uh, to not last for too long. Lifeson said, for a couple of years, we just needed to learn our trade. At that time, you played maybe three times a month or if you were luck- really lucky at high school dances and drop-in centers. The turning point for us was in 1971 when the legal drinking age in Ontario, our province, was lowered <laughs> from 21 to 18. Now we could play bars and clubs. Suddenly, there was this opportunity to play as a full-time musician. We played constantly in bars. And uh, so after a year of hitting the clubs hard, they get a name for themselves and they're really starting to get that small, like local following, but still a following playing gigs. And so that's when they decide we need to get into the studio. And their first thing was a cover of Buddy Holly's Not Fade Away, which the Stones covered as well. It was definitely more based on that Stones cover than the Buddy Holly original. Uh, but the the it doesn't really matter because the recording really was dissatisfying to all involved. And uh, they, they weren't happy too happy with it. Uh, but it was at least a first step. They got into the studio. Then um, Ray Daniels put up the money for a full album. That was their kind of manager guy. And their producer kind of sucked. So they ended up recording that entire album twice, which is a nightmare. I mean, I have recorded EPs, albums before. It is so laborious to have to do the whole thing over again because your producer sucked. <laughs> that would be fucking awful. <laughs> so the self-titled album came out in 1974. And that's when obviously things really took off for the band. I love how because back in the day and i love that too later they end up with that song about the death of radio uh with uh, the spirit of radio on permanent waves uh, you know because it really made their their whole careers there's just one dj who who honestly was just looking for a long enough song to take a nice long piss break on saw this working man song it's well they seven called minutes. it uh toilet tracks toilet tracks exactly the uh you know famously uh bohemian rhapsody uh paradise by the dashboard lights yeah. these are all like long enough songs that the dj can like just get the fuck up and go pee and this dj just happened to be in cleveland uh the cleveland radio station wmms and putting on a track called working man and hearing the way it sounds uh you know hey actually can we get a little of working man right now april just lit up a working man's town right perfect song for cleveland <laughs> just absolutely fantastic I get up every morning get kicked into the dick work for 18 hours and then get kicked in the dick again <laughs> i'm a working man don't want to go to work don't want to go home wish everybody would leave me alone every day for lunch i eat a big meat ball punching my boss in the face 
punch in his face and out of his face. None of these are lyrics from the song, but I think they we captured the soul of the it, soul of of the song, and that soul is a beautiful soul. Donna's got to take a crap, so let's just put on the working man song again. Might as well get paid to take a shit. Might as well get paid to take a shit. Working man. Um. All right. So yeah, this is how they get a record deal with Mercury Records, and this is when things really change for them because motherfucking Neil Peart enters the arena. And unfortunately for John Rutley... Uh, oh, sorry. Did I say Rutley earlier? I uh, Send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Wizard in the Bruiser, <laughs> P.O. Box, and let us know how many Rutleys got in there. How many times I said John Rutley, I have no idea. But either way, John Rutsey... He's having health condition problems, uh, and uh, it's bad timing because he's also kind of grading on the guys a little bit with his direction. He really wants to keep them essentially in that Led Zeppelin blues rock sound and wants to stay in that lane, and they are like nerd nerds, and they're like, hey, we want to make this nerd shit, and I don't know what to tell you, buddy, but also... Just kind of the timing worked out. He's John uh, Rutsey's been missing a lot of gigs because of his uh, issues with diabetes. So it really just sort of all came to a head, and they they had to move on. And if they were going to move to the next level from Rutsey, Lee said we were guilt ridden at first, but we realized that it's just the way it had to be. He wasn't happy. We we and we weren't happy. We he had personal issues. It was a complicated time. We were discussing a future and not knowing what that meant. The rehearsals were becoming not much fun. There were definitely two different views in the band. And I mean, honestly, though, what is Rush without Neil Peart? So they hold auditions. They have like five different guys. They feel so bad for the last guy that came into audition because Neil Peart was the fourth guy. Mm. And all they could think about during the audition with the fifth guy was, when can we get back <laughs> in with Neil Peart and keep playing? What His playing was so exciting to them. Lifeson said, we were so blown away by Neil's playing. It was very Keith Moon-like, very active, and he hit his drums so hard. And then after we jammed, we chatted, and he was so bright. We connected on so many levels. Pure joins the band. They get to work touring and writing the next album while on the road. And they noticed that Pure is an avid reader. And you know what? But this was always the thing, right? Because I remember this fucking shit. And, and Murder Fist, my old sketch group. Everybody like, oh, you're so good at typing the <laughs> sketches. You should always type the sketches while we get to just pace around and chain smoke cigarettes and come up with stuff. And you just write it down because you're so good at it. Well, that's kind of sounds like what Lee and Lifeson did with Pierre. They were like, you're such a good reader. You should write all the lyrics because we are, we are bad at it. But you're so good at it. And also, I'm sure they did not want to. So they put it on Pierre to write all the lyrics for the band, which I think is a really interesting dynamic to have that drummer, the percussionist, doing that. And and that it wasn't even really collaborative. Like, they were just like, no, I we bad lyrics. You good lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> and just move on from there. So, yeah, I mean, Pure writes pretty much all the lyrics uh, for all the songs uh, and is, like, one of the best drummers that ever existed. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. It also definitely kind of, like, drastically changes where the band is uh, philosophically just yes. in terms of the content because, you know, in on the Rush album, there's songs like uh, Need Some Love, which is just the most like, wanna baby kiss me tight, hold you close, yeah. do do do. Like, even the, even the lyric density is like just very sparse. And then by uh, Fly By Night, which is the first album with Peart doing the lyrics, 
We have stuff like Bitor and the Snow Dog, yeah. like an eight minute fucking thing where it's like the Tobes of Hades lit by flickering torchlight. The right. Netherworld is gathered in the glare. Yeah. Prince Bitor takes the cavern to the Northlight. The sign of Unth is rising in the air. Like th- when you get that, like one of the things that I feel like makes Rush Rush and is kind of a uh, detriment, one of the many barriers that uh-huh. kind of holds people off that you have to like force yourself through <laughs> is that, you know, in a classic rock song is, you know, things are on point like da na 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 I love my baby girl best in the whole world. Yeah. Take her in my car. We'll drive her very far. Right, or, you know, right, fine. right. Meanwhile, you, know, you get a wall Jake. of Getty Lee <laughs> being like, when the third oak tree right. fails upon the twilight, then the maples stand at attention. <laughs> like, right, yeah, like totally. He's trying to force all these pert lyrics into the music and it's like very dense it's overwhelming and you have a, t- a track on fly by night this is the the second album the one they first bring in pure uh t- a track called rivendell you know what i mean <laughs> uh, based in obviously lord of the rings and then on the first album you've got squirt and mustard on a hot dog <laughs> squirt and mustard squirt and mustard on a hot dog makes me happy makes me happy feeling crappy makes me happy yeah so i love the difference <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to have a little fun here. It's also important to note that uh, these guys were signed to Mercury Records on that first hard rock album. And now they're like opening for bands like Aerosmith and Kiss. Yeah. With this new direction. And fans are like kind of confused. They're like, they're not quite sure what is happening. Listening to your favorite podcast. That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University. That's really smart. With 24 seven access to coursework. No set class times and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. I mean, but also, and it's cool too. I did mention Rivendell, and another thing I'll say about that is, you know, that first album, it's it's very samey, like you said, all the songs. I mean, Rivendell is this like quiet ballad. Mm-hmm. You've got you you're starting to see, and they even said, I believe Lee said, we wanted each song to show a different side of the band. So, right out of the gate, they're like, we want to show that we have layers that we have different ele- different elements we can bring in different tracks and we don't want to hold ourselves down any one thing which allowed them I think to continue to grow and expand um, so a big of course you already mentioned to- by tour and the snow dog but that was one of their big kind of steps forward what, what established that they do epic tracks now uh, clocking in at eight minutes and 37 seconds and uh, I will say too it is actually a sort of inside joke um, based on the dogs owned by their manager and lighting guy that they were around a lot on the road uh, that's the whole thing with that Getty Lee said 
Suddenly, it was a very different band. Once we had Neil with us, so much changed in the way we wrote music and the way we presented it. And from that point on, it felt like we could do anything. So after, they, they, I think just in their excitement, they put out Fly By Night. The track Fly By Night does quite well for them. That's one of their big, biggest first singles. Uh, the track Anthem also was big on that album. Uh, so they immediately get back in. They're like, we got to keep this momentum. They put out Caress of Steel. Ooh. And... It, Though it, well, I will say though, I think I think it gets a bad rap when you do have amazing necro. The Necromancer is an amazing track. Bastille Day, incredible track, but uh, this did have a, a a darker turn for the band early on as uh, this this failed to light the world on fire. Let's say Alex Lifeson said. When we finished Crest of Seal, we were so proud of it. We uh, really felt like we were taking some chances and growing and going somewhere. We were experimenting. But people felt it was just uneven. It was too, you have these two epically long songs in a row at the end of the album. But then, like, you also have I Think I'm Going Bald, which is not me making up a jo- name of a joke song, unlike the mustard bit I just did. No, this is like a song about getting old. I'm getting old, you know what I mean? And it kind of, it just feels off compared to the other things they're doing. It's just a little too uneven. It's a little too many layers. Keddy Lee said, the problem was that nobody really understood what the hell we were doing with that record. And I can't say we really knew what the hell we were up to either. These long songs we had, The Necromancer and The Fountain of Lamneth, they were very complex and dark. On The Fountain of Lamneth, we were talking about didacts and narpets. Uh, it was kind of hard for people to understand. Getty Lee also <laughs> says, we were pretty high when we made the album. And I <laughs> yeah. believe them. We were fucking ripped apart while we made this. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I love, all right, the, the Caress of Steel is definitely that album, you know, they always refer to as like, we had to make Caress of Steel to get to 2112, which we are about to get to. But that's kind of what this was. It was a stepping stone album for them, but kind of bad timing for their careers because that they start playing smaller venues than they were already playing before. They, they had kind of, they had kind of gotten off on a good foot and then hit this immediate early career slump, this like, Almost sophomore slump, even though it was three albums in. Alex Lifeson said, we called it the Down the Tube Tour. Everybody was in a state of panic. However, I will say, I think they're the only people I've ever heard who had an interaction with Gene Simmons and actually talked fondly about it. So they had a blast opening for Kiss, apparently. just got The two bands got along great, and they always remember that time. That was like the silver lining of that Supposedly, time. Supposedly, Alex Lifeson would, uh, in backstage... Uh, put on a paper or a laundry bag that uh, had a weird face drawn on it. And he would to- walk around as the bag. And um, Paul Stanley apparently thought this was the funniest fucking thing <laughs> in the entire world. Uh, and so Alex would constantly walk around as the bag and much to the delight of the band members of Kiss until during a fateful night, a groupie in Paul Stanley's hotel room uh, was like, this isn't funny. What's going, why are you wearing a bag? <laughs> and Alex Lyson was so offended that he kicked uh, her and her friend out to which Paul Stanley was like, "That w- this is my room. Those were my groupies. What is wrong with you, you Canadian nerd? <laughs> but it's just to highlight that these are like these, these kind of straight-laced kids, these like Music, you know, they're they care about the musicality of everything. Yeah. They're like ingesting all this stuff. They're playing with all these high concept things when they were still in the kind of the 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 pigeonhole that 
uh, they were left in with their old style. This was, they were still being represented by the people that were like, yeah, working man, good, rock and roll. Right, yeah, exactly. Working man kind of trying to shake off that working man. Uh, and so their label is very unhappy with how Caressive Seal did. And really, this is that make or break moment. Their next album is either going to continue their careers forward or going to be this like massive brick wall in terms of their trajectory. Luckily, it was the former. Alex Lifeson said, we knew the Mercury could drop us after that record, but we thought if they do, at least we gave it a try. We had had to make a record that was true to us. In that sense, 2112 was the birth of the real rush. And as unsuccessful as Caress of Steel had been, we had to make that album to get to 2112. And I would say if you're jumping into this episode, 2112, man. 2112. Oh, is it 2112? I'm going to redo that. It doesn't matter. I'm just exclaiming that this is a legendary album. Oh, (laughs) I'm afraid I'm saying everything wrong today. Uh, I'll refer to it as 2112 from here on out, just in case somebody gets mad at me. Uh, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Who's going to be like, I'm confused. Which album are you talking about? I was going to say that if you are listening to this episode and you are like, where should I maybe start? I think this is a fantastic starting point uh, uh, to just say, well, this is the Rush sound. This is the statement they're trying to make. Moving Pictures, I think, is is another one for sure that that is probably regarded as the greatest Rush album of all time. But I think 2112 is a great starting point if you're really trying to like see understand what this band came to do. And it really started with Neil Peart writing a story based on the novella Anthem by Ayn Rand which was a sci-fi story about a future dark age in which individuality has been eliminated and a young man who rebels by doing secret scientific research. But when caught, uh, he flees to the woods with his lover to create a new society. And they also got a lot of influence from The Fountainhead, but more in a career sense. Getty Lee said, The Fountainhead is a story about an architect who was determined not to compromise the aesthetic, his vision, and he would do just about anything, even radical things, to stand up for his art and his right to be an individual. That spoke volumes to us while we were making 2112. It gave us confidence in a way. And so, yeah, just that idea, like, we have to stand, stick to our guns if we conform to this label, if we make what we think they want us to make, we are going to fail, which is a very wise thing to understand this early in a career. Let's do a little side gush about about 2112, yeah. because it's kind of amazing, like, where Caress of Steel kind of fell on deaf ears. There was, you know, a lot more fantasy elements. Uh, and, you know, uh, in in prog rock and prog metal that like Tolkien influence was super prevalent. But uh, by using Ayn Rand, uh, you know, this was a different and science fiction. It was a, it was a completely different kind of direction to go with the sweeping epic kind of story based uh, production. And I'm not honestly, I honestly believe that if you were say a Canadian teenager in the 1970s, it was fun to think about like the ways that society, the post-war society was kind of all consuming and the welfare state and like everything was so stabilized and you felt trapped by it. Um, there's like a generational thing going on where like it feels like in the old days from like the 70s to the 90s, everyone was like, fuck this suburban conformity, man. Like true freedom is what's necessary. And nowadays with like millennials and Gen Z, it's like, 
no, please give us some fucking stability. This is hard that we have too much. You've given us too much freedom. And I would love just to like not worry about health insurance. What the fuck? Like things happen in waves and everyone yearns for the thing that they don't have. So like, I'm not so uh, hard on Peart for like using rant as an influence, Uh but the side one, 2112, uh, all these early synths uh, that Getty Lee is playing with immediately uh, sets a sci-fi tone. There's like laser noises. You're in space. <laughs> We're introduced to the uh, priests of the Temple of Syrinx, which is an amazing chunk of music. Yep. Uh, just driving guitars, this looming threat, talking about not like an evil king or a mystic dragon, but a religious order backed by computers to like dictate what can and cannot be enjoyed by the populace, which, you know, to Rush is directly responding to their record label. They're saying that the tastemakers think they have everything under control, but there's a uh, darkness to that, a, a, a constriction to that. Our hero in the story is then uh, he discovers a guitar and they during live shows, they will like skip a lot of this, the slower parts, because it is so hokey to me, this like boomer, like the power of rock, like I got a guitar and it sings my pain. Like, <laughs> like, like, okay, yes, at the time, the guitar was a symbol of youthful rebellion <laughs> and not a thing you go to like Sam Goody to buy for your like shitty 13 year old nephew. Um, the uh, guitar is presented to the priests who are like, no, that was from the old days. Like, we have already gotten rid of your precious rock. Like, destroy him. Uh, then our hero is visited by the Oracle, who uh, was like, nah, bro, you were right about guitars. Guitars were totally cool. I'm from the past. And in the elder race of man, we built like spaceships and you could do whatever you want and you could rock out as hard as you wanted. And now sucks. But back then... The rockers, we really ruled. Uh, with that information, our hero delivers a soliloquy in which it is heavily implied he commits suicide <laughs> or he just goes to sleep for a while. Then the entire universe almost blows up musically and we hear all these like crashing sounds. And famously, the, uh, uh, the phrase, uh, we have assumed control. Supposedly, I think canonically now, it's the elder race of man returned from the stars to conquer the oppressive federation of planets and the priests. And so, like, it's just this giant space opera told about the power of rock. And it's directly about what was concerning uh, Rush fans and rock fans that, like, there was too much, you know, that, like, their freedom was being constrained by the market forces behind the music industry. Then side two is just, a bunch of classic rock singles yeah. that like it's kind of I didn't even like Passage to Bangkok uh-huh. Twilight Zone uh if we can get a little bit of lessons I love Lessons. That's like such a catchy rock song. Lyrics by Alex Lifeson, actually. 
uh, and something for not tears and something for nothing. So you get like classic rock singles as well as the very timely, very resonant sci-fi epic all in one album. And it just is so perfect that it's, it's just like, of course, this is a legendary album. Yeah. And it shows the kind of the two things they're really good at doing, right? These epic, incredible kind of spanning, pro- very proggy storytelling you know medleys essentially uh multiple multiple tracks in one kind of thing and then also though bang out these three minute long fucking radio songs like they they have that ability to do both and also the ability to and we're going to start seeing this more and more as each album comes out and especially when we get to stuff like limelight on moving pictures they start to also move away from the like Skelsior and the Eggman sin and and move more into like hey this is what my life's kind of like <laughs> i hate i hate uh, you know, doing fan stuff because it makes me feel awkward. Uh, so yeah, I, and it it uh, it really it just totally lit lit them up uh, in terms of a band. Lifeson said about twenty one twelve, the first album where we really felt like we had an identifiable sound. Uh, and uh, also, Lee said, uh, aside from the horrible photo of us in the back cover dressed as kamikaze kimono wearing idiots. It was a great package. And by that package, that iconic cover done by good friend and artist Hugh Syme, who was given all the lyrics and a taste of some of the songs and returned with that star man that is now Rush's main logo and is a great identifier for the band, I think. And, you know, and, and uh, I do love, though, that they could, could still, even with that iconic record cover, they still had to have a goofy picture of them in, <laughs> in kimonos to fuck it, to just remind us they're a bunch of nerds. Uh, making music. So, uh, and at first sales were low, not long though, uh, was that the case. And according to Getty Lee, it was just a fantastic time. Pretty much everything changed for us with 2112. There were a lot of growing pains in terms of what kind of live act we were becoming because we had to learn how to be a headliner and start developing a show, which we really didn't have. Uh, we had to think in terms of providing a show and giving the people their money's worth. We were the band they were actually paying to see. And uh, also, you know, I think it's important to note, and, and I think came from a lot of their inspiration from reading like The Fountainhead and all that kind of stuff. They, they didn't let the label have any involvement in the making of this record. The, the the only person involved was their producer, Terry Brown, outside of the three members of the band itself. And uh, yeah, that, that really, really, I think, cemented how they were able to strike out and be like, this is Rush, uh, make this great statement. And man, it, it just goes on from there. Next, we travel to the United Kingdom. It's the Beatles are there and Stones are there and everybody's square. We call cookies biscuits. <laughs> Don't, in it? <laughs> Don't, uh, and we'll take it the lift and we'll beat you up in the street sometimes. So, yeah, they're in the UK. It's beautiful. and that's Queuing up for next- crisps. You know how it Queuing goes. Queuing up for crisps. Yeah, they're in the, oh, those annoying crisp lines that you always see <laughs> around the block. Like those cupcake places we have here. Why do people do that to themselves? Just get it. It's not going to taste that much better than a, uh, any kind of random store-bought cupcake. I, I just don't understand these things. No, because it, the satisfaction of waiting online for something and it being good enough to have waited for is like way more dopamine than just like, hey, this cake tastes pretty all right. Right, right. Which is why I think I'll never actually enjoy the PS5 when I get it because I've waited this fucking long and it still does not exist in my life. But that's going to date this episode. And I apologize. (laughs) This is no longer an evergreen episode. It's 2021, baby. 
and that said, farewell to Kingsman. Closer to the heart. Mm. And closer to the heart. Yeah, it has that track on it, bra. It's a it good also track. has Xanadu. That's a good track and a really good radio track. And uh, they had a great time making this album. Well, did they? they... Farewell to Kings, they did. Not ne- the album after that, they had a, a, a rough, rough, yeah. Hemispheres was the fucker. Mm. Okay. According to my research, yeah. Alex Lifeson said, we felt we had found our sound on 2112 and it was developing further on A Farewell to Kings. And this era had Lifeson experimenting with classical and 12-string guitars, Lee incorporating bass pedal synthesizers and a synth keyboard called a mini Moog, while Pert was expanding his percussions with stuff like wood blocks, gong, chimes, and glockenspiel. I mean, dude, just look at the set. Neil Peart ends up working with, especially later in his career. It is fucking ridiculous, the drum sets he was he was rocking. But it's definitely the musicality of Rush is they have like chosen like, hey, we are Rush and our songs are going to be harder to play than yes. other people's songs. We are going to push ourselves and our songs are going to be, ch- even after a year's worth of touring, these songs are still going to be challenging to do right. Because we're different like that. One of my favorite quotes was from Neil Peart, and I'm uh, I'm not doing it verbatim, but he said he essentially said, "Everyone always asks me if I get sick of playing Tom Sawyer, and I say no because that song is so difficult to do to play right that every time I play it right, it feels great. <laughs> like and and that's a really and, uh, a that's like the nerdiest shit you could do in music, right? Mm. Make something so difficult that like just the experience of Doing, knowing you, and only you would know this, by the way. Like most people wouldn't even pick up on this, but knowing that you played that technically perfect in every single way, and that being as fulfilling night after night after night as it was when you first got it right in the studio is, is uh, I think, oh, fantastic. That is another part of the Rush Gateway. Yeah. Is once you're through it with songs like Tom Sawyer, you can, like, if if you if you are not through the door, if you are just still on the outside of the Rush experience, you're like, okay, yeah, rock, guitars, ninu, 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 whatever. Yeah. But it's when you're through it and you know like how big Peart's uh drum kit is, and you know how Getty Lee is like holding a double-necked bass while working on the synth, while singing, you you know, life's in working with all these different pedals and like doing these impeccable solos every time. Like you you can the difference between like hearing Tom Sawyer and like visually understanding what each member of the band is doing yes. and how difficult what they're doing is. And because it's a trio, you really can tap into that. Mm-hmm. Like you really can think about each section a lot more clearly because you're just focusing on three people. So yeah, going back to uh, Farewell to Kings, uh, it just it was so successful for them. They had such a good time recording it. They returned to Rockfield to do their next album in the summer of 78 entitled Hemispheres. And this was the lab- laborious one. And this one also, I think, just saw them. They, 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 they figured their whole new direction out with 2112. They they cement it with Farewell to Kings. And then by the time they get to Hemispheres, they're like, wait, we're kind of just doing the same thing over and over here again. And this time it just was like not fun for them. I mean, uh, Lifeson said with Hemispheres, everything was a struggle. One issue seemed to be that they wrote everything 
and then just went immediately in to record it without any real rehearsal mm-hmm. and any real like editing or revising to the song. So I think they kind of had to work out a lot of the problems while recording, which is not the best way to do it a lot, a lot of times. Lee said, there were a lot of songs that were a lot more difficult to sing than I imagined. I couldn't hit a lot of notes and I didn't have the luxury that I have now. Now, if my voice doesn't feel good or sound good, we just shut it down and come back on another day. You get some recovery time, which is kind of logical. But with Hemispheres, we'd been in Britain for weeks and weeks making the record and everything we did was just like pulling teeth. The result was a fatigued band worried about becoming too formulaic for their records. Getty Lee said, the title track, Cygnus X1 Book 2 Hemispheres. Oh Again, that title track is Cygnus X1 Book 2 Hemispheres. A direct sequel yes. to the end of the last album, Cygnus X1 Book 1 The Voyage. Yes, exactly. Uh, that was another sidelong piece. Uh, this is going back to the Getty quote. It was, in, in a sense, a different version of 2112. The notes were different. The story was different. But structurally, we started feeling like we were repeating ourselves. So we thought, this isn't healthy for us. We've got to break out of that. We needed a new direction, and we found it in Permanent Waves. And I think it really helped that... And this is another great thing about this band, and it impresses me so much when I can see people adapt like this, because it's so fucking hard to do, I'm telling you, is they listened to the music that was happening around them. The police were coming out uh, with this new sound based in in the reggae space. They're doing... um, Man, I said that in the most Southern way ever. Spiced in the reggae space. They're really getting in there, and they're really... I ain't a bunch of Cracker Jacks names, but came up with the reggae. Uh, But they incorporated that. They incorporated New Wave. And they even talked about how they were like, we were, we feel like a lot of bands around us were seeing punk and new wave and complaining and being like, ugh, what? I have to like reinvent the wheel now or like I have to like completely start over and shit. And they were like, one of the few bands that saw new what, what they were doing with New Wave saw what they were doing with uh, you know incorporating like reggae and different different stuff like that and and said, Hey, let's let's do that too. I mean, bands that they looked up to, like Genesis and the police, these British bands that started kind of proggy and like high concept were kind of making their way into new wave and the new romantic kind of sound as well, because it is, uh, you know, there is a certain musicality to it. There is a certain uh, freedom and kind of sound spaces to explore. It's, you know, it just it builds. It, it does build on things that came before it. So, of course, like they're naturally kind of evolving with it. Um, can I just say before uh, we move into permanent waves, uh, the cover, uh, the Hugh Syme cover for Hemispheres with the star boy yeah, on yeah, a brain. Yeah. Iconic. And it's like uh, beautiful. Like this is part of the thing about Rush 2 is they were built for an era that is way long gone where like the album cover of an LP was huge. And yeah. you could like dive into it. You could dive into the lyric sheet and the liner notes. Uh, and each, you know, sitting down with a new record was a deliberate act. Right. You listen to the whole side with in your, with your, in your headphones. It wasn't background music, or it wasn't uh, it wasn't a song on a Spotify mix. It was, you know what I mean? Not 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 to offend Spotify. We love you guys, by the way. It's fantastic stuff. But yeah, it was back when it was a, there was a whole you know ritual to listening to music, which I even experienced with CDs later on. You know, I mean, I remember. Going to the store and getting Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, Smashing Pumpkins, that big, that double CD case, and going into my room and had all this booklet and all this art and stuff and just putting those CDs on. And that was my day, was listening to that album, you know? That was my whole afternoon. Also contained within Hemispheres are kind of two songs that I feel like really highlight some of what makes Rush such an appealing nerd band. 
because on side two of hemispheres, there's the trees, which is this sickeningly sincere uh, <laughs> environmental treatise about the council of trees in a forest, like arguing with one another. Um, if if you can just play a little bit of that. Unrest in the forest, there is trouble with the trees. For the maples want more sunlight, and the oaks ignore their pleas. When you think about Rush as like high-voiced Getty Lee singing about nonsense, like The Trees is a beloved exemplar of that kind of style. Um, but the next track is La Via Strangiato, and literally the par- parenthetical title is An Exercise in Self-Indulgence. Mm-hmm. And it's a 10-minute free-for-all, a, an instrumental tour de force that even amongst all of their highfalutin ideas about like the pushing the outer limits of what can be done with music, they admit that it is kind of a silly endeavor. I think at multiple points during La Via Strangiato, they just start doing the Looney Tunes. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I think that's the song that they do that in. So like it's a, it's a space where you're free to be this sincere and heartfelt and as much of a music nerd as you want, like futzing around with signature times and unique instrumentation but also taking the piss out of yourself at the same time that like it's, 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 it's soul music, but also don't, you know, it's not like a bummer. It's kind of like when you meet that perfect friend group after feeling so alienated for so long, that makes you feel like you can cry in front of them and you can be a goofball too. And, and no one's, no one's going to judge you because everybody has the same kind of outcast sort of energy. You know what I mean? And by outcast, I mean the hip hop group, which we'll also be covering (laughs) next week. Now, um, uh, I would love to cover Outcast some point, actually. Fun. But regardless, uh, yes, next we get to Planet Waves. Getty Lee said, I can't say that punk rock had direct permanent waves. permanent waves. I'm saying everything wrong today. It's unbelievable. It's I'm hungover. You're tired. But the power of Rush, the rock, the power of rock music keeps us going. Permanent waves. Uh, uh, getting back to permanent waves. Getty Lee said, I can't say that punk rock had directly influenced us, but there was a change in music at that time in the late 70s. It was an exciting time musically. A lot of change in the air, and we wanted to change too. The song that really led the direction of the album was one of the first songs written for the album, and that is The Spirit of Radio, which again, if you're going to take a song from their catalog that that exemplifies, especially where they're at at this point, that's a great track to go with. It had uh, this opening riff that mimicked the movement of radio waves and changed in style in a way to replicate that FM dial turning. It's almost like a video killed the radio star. That was sort of the signifier of like M- the MTV generation taking over. This was this beautiful like send-off to radio at the time, knowing that things were changing. And uh, it, it was very much them acknowledging that the music industry was changing in a profound way around this time. Liveson said, we felt that we'd really achieved something with that record. The songs were shorter, but still challenging for us as musicians. And even now, when we do The Spirit of Radio Live, it's still hard 
to play well, which again, going for that, just like, let's just make it so challenging that live shows are just always interesting. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Within the Rush fandom, it was common practice during uh, Spirit of Radio, which obviously is one of their biggest hits, was a constant presence during their live shows. Uh, during that, invisible airwaves crackle with light. Um, the fans were usually, they didn't even need to be told by the end of their touring careers, but you hold both hands up and do a finger pinch motion <laughs> towards Getty Lee. As part of the invisible airwaves cracking with light. That was the official <laughs> nice. move. Oh, wow. That was the fun, kind of like the Rocky Horror thing. So is Rush the proto-K-pop? Is that what you're saying right now? I'm saying that, uh, <laughs> I'm saying that again, with so much lore and so much fan love, and we're barely scratching the surface, and almost every song that we're talking about has its own in-jokes, yeah. has its own iconography, has its own memes about it within the Rush fandom. And it's a beautiful thing. It's funny. They're intimidated by their own fans. They're like, they're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> they openly acknowledge. They're like, they're they're in too deep. It's really too much. Like, especially because they're always like, we don't even know what we're saying. We're just, <laughs> we look back on some of these records. We're like, what the fuck are we even saying? Uh, but yes, now we get to the culmination of all of this work. This fucking album, man. Moving pictures. Again, iconic cover uh, and it's that album definitely that you hear the name of in terms of like with the greatest rock albums of all time, you know, it's on, it's on a lot of those lists. Uh, now I think it's, um, better regarded even more so in, even in hindsight, but this just, this really just completely made them like the biggest band, uh, that year when moving pictures dropped. Lifeson said, most of that record was written by all of us at the same time, in the room, jamming with an idea, and everybody going from there. What we ended up with was, I think, some of the strongest and most enduring material that we've ever written. There are a lot of songs on that record that reached a really high standard. And uh, so, yeah, that, while working on the song Tom Sawyer, even they were unsure if they could actually get the song right. It took a really long time, and uh, they were almost they were about to give up on it, and finally... It worked out. They were also thinking like this is you know never had any concept that this, Tom Sawyer would just be their their biggest track ever. The song Limelight, I sang it in the very beginning. That was written by Neil, exploring his issues with fame. Lee said it was a different level of fame, and Neil was being confronted with things on a regular basis that were making him really uncomfortable. So we wrote that lyric. I can't pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. That song was Neil's way of trying to sort it all out. And I think that was a really cool thing. And also just shows their maturity uh, lyrically. 
in a huge way coming from Neil. I think the, the there are some you know really solid lyrics on this album and just unbelievable music compositions. Also, besides the camera eye, which clocks in at ten minutes fifty eight seconds, everything's four minutes. You know, Red Barchetta is uh, six minutes, but uh, you know, amazing to watch live. By the way, um, yeah, and we're not even like doing a service. I feel like to the, all the live albums that they came out with as well. Through, uh, throughout this time um, that were just just a great connector to say like wow you if you're into this band you need to go to a show like it is they are able to perfectly present their arrangements and their arrangements are so interesting I think a lot of times people don't want to see like oh they're like an album band live or whatever or maybe that's not the right phrase for it but, or, or that they just sound exactly like the album when you when you see them live. And it, I think in Rush's case, that's like not a bad thing, even though they do add like there will be like these huge drum solos and all this kind of stuff. And they do add a lot of accoutrements to their songs in the live space. But also like those songs are so technically difficult to play that it, they can sound just like the album. And it still is fascinating to watch mm-hmm. because you, you have to see it to believe it. Just these three guys creating these incredibly intricate uh, songs together. Anyways, I just love it. YYZ. YYZ, a- Holden. It's based on the Canadian Air, uh, Toronto Airport uh, s- signal. Literally, the Morse code for YYZ is built into the song through different musical arrangements. It's so fucking crazy, man. This this album is just like... I put this album on and went on a, a, a run. And man, perfect for that. Just soak it in. I mean, it's the kind of thing... It does call back to a different era where you really should sit down, throw on some headphones and just focus on this album, you know, clocks in at 40 minutes. It's not that crazy of a commitment. And it's, you know, incredibly fulfilling to really try to hear the drums, really try to hear synths, the guitars, all that stuff. Uh, Man, just can't say enough good things about moving pictures. Then we enter what many people call the synthy years. (laughs) The keyboard era is what I called it too. Oh, Getty. Oh, he got so crazy. I love too that they're just like, they're just like, he just got, keyboard fucking crazy and we couldn't do anything about it and like <laughs> i love the watching it's so funny watching like because you know they all love each other so they're not gonna like talk shit about each other especially in a, like a documentary about them but you can see it on their faces while they're talking about like peart and uh life's in that is when they're talking about the keyboard era i mean let's just say like this is a band that adapts and in the 80s they went Full fucking 80s. Never go full fucking 80s. You know what? I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It shows growth. It it makes them a more rewarding kind of uh, rabbit hole to fall into that they have these distinct eras. Yeah. Um, And yeah, uh, Lifeson talks about how, you know, if he, you know, what's he supposed to do as the, you know, what's he supposed to do if Getty Lee is both like the rhythm section and the like bass and the melody and everything like he just kind of sits on the side and throws in a couple of guitar solos when he can. And even, uh, yeah. And Peart has to like, you know, be like, Hey, was that, was that a drum? Was that a drum beat? You fucker. (laughs) Hey, Hey, just step off. I'm Neil Peart. We're specifically talking about the albums, signals, grace under pressure and power windows, which by the way, power windows is the perfect name for a Cynthia's fuck 80s album that's so synth out you don't even know what's fucking not synthesized at that point uh, and what's uh, like are there any real instruments in this album um it's fantastic but it was also like a it was another culling where the people who left them behind uh during caress of steel 
and they attracted an even deeper fan base with the people that stuck with them in 2112. Yeah. Like, you know, if you were, if you truly were like, nah, I need raging guitar solos about space priesthoods. Like I I'm, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. Like that's on you, man. That's on you. The people that stayed got like incredible songs. Like the one I mentioned, red sector a is an incredible tour de force uh-huh. um, written by Neil Peart about, uh, Getty Lee's parents struggle in the Holocaust and like what it's like to lose all hope in a in a world where your only uh, rebellion is staying alive. That's on Grace Under Pressure. It's yeah, Grace yeah. Under Pressure uh, on Signals. There's Subdivisions, which Subdivisions is, this, like, is one of renowned as one of their greatest songs, too. Yeah, for sure. The most sincere and tolerable of the you know what the real prison is, the suburbs <laughs> kind of desperation. Yeah, for sure. Lifeson said, at first I was totally into it. I even played some keyboards. I thought it was a really important and unique part of what Rush was becoming. Uh, Leah said, my love of keyboards, I guess you could call it an obsession, reached its peak on power windows. Lifeson said, keyboards were the new thing. So there was this attitude. Let's just push them up. They sound big and they sound cool. But it was very difficult for Lyson because he's like, there's so much keyboard. And he said, quote, the guitar suffered in a lot of the mixes. That's what bothered me more than anything. The bottom line was, I just thought that we needed to preserve the core of what the band is. It's a three piece. And yeah, once you get to power windows, I think there's some highs there. There's some lows there. But it just I feel like they went so far out into synthland, synth, synthentland. And they realize, like, hey, a lot of what people want, like, are, are is like applying a, raw, a bit of a raw sound as a trio to a progressive rock, uh, you know, themes and uh, and musicality. And so, you know, they kind of started to think maybe too much keyboards after those three albums. <laughs> and so, at the end of the eighties, uh, Rush returns to their roots on the albums Presto and Roll the Bones, led by their new producer, Rupert Hine, especially the latter album. They also incorporated new sounds at this time, funk, hip hop, jazz, you know. Can we talk about the skeleton rap? Holden, <laughs> can we talk about the rapping skeleton? Yes, please. The crossover single from Roll the Bones, I think it's, a lot of people make fun of it. It is, the music video is available on YouTube. It's very of the era, kind of like Van Halen right now, yeah, flashing yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, stock footage, uh, f- like very deep, but not deep lyrics. I love the chords is like, why are we here? <laughs> because we're here, roll the bones. <laughs> why does it happen? Because it happens, roll the bones. And the song is intersected with a uh in the music video it's done by a cool skeleton with a mohawk and sunglasses but it's down pitched getty lee uh rapping about polyester slacks i'm sorry i i i know this is i'm doing this just to be mean rush fans i understand please play the rap from roll the bones All 
right. Can we move on? It's from a this? very this cool skeleton holding period to focus on. Peter Collins then steps in after that to work with them on albums counterparts and test for echo. Uh, and on the production side, Neil Peart uh, at this time, by the way, and this is one of those moments of like, I can't believe this guy was like, I need to get better at this point in his career. But he does feel this way and ends up working with drum coach Freddie Gruber on his drumming. And I thought it was really fascinating. They were talking together in an interview on the Rush Doc about how, you know, it, it was like, it's kind of like in comedy, they talk about like how the real important part is the space in between, is the silence and how you work with that that stuff. And in Freddie Gruber's teachings, it's about the motion in between the drum hit. And, and how your arms are moving, how your body's moving, and, and what, what you're doing in between the beat, essentially. In between the, in between the slaps of the drumsticks onto, the, onto the, the skins. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not a drummer. I hate drums. No, I love drums, but, you know, I can't play them. I mean, I don't know what it means for Neil Peart that he uh, completely switched his drumming style from a uh, matched grip to traditional grip. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Yeah. And... Uh, Focusing on hitting cymbals on the upstroke again sounds hard. Yes. If you've been drumming at this point for like 25 years at the height of your abilities and switching from scratch. Sounds intense. Yeah. It was one of those things too where he was like, Getty and Lifeson even were like, what? You just, it sounds like you're drumming, man. Like when he came back from all of his like mentorship with uh, Freddie. But ne- Neil was like, I know, I know I sound different. Even if they don't think I sound different, I know my sound has improved. And just was so keyed in to uh, to his craft in a way that is so impressive. And I mean, just look up Neil Peart, drum solo, live. Just look up any any of that footage to watch some of the most stellar drumming you've ever seen in your life on drum kits that are so epic and amazing. I love the one on the turn, like that spins around as he's doing the drum solo so you can see the different parts of the kit when he decides to focus on them. It is like incredible. And uh, yeah, I just love it. And now shit's about to get sad. So fuck yourselves. What? Um, hold on. No, don't fuck yourselves. <laughs> That's not a good catchphrase. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. I just, I don't know how to get into this. It's so tragic. So after the test for echo tour in 1997, I, I did not know this by the way, until this week. And I was like, good God, that it just sounds so, I can't believe he came. He was even able to come back from this at all. Uh, he, his Neil Peart's daughter in the summer of 1997 tragically died in a car crash. Uh, I believe she was 18 or 19 years old. So sad. Ten months later, his wife dies from cancer, and Peart really does attribute it, though, to a broken heart, and he he is obviously destroyed. Everyone at the funeral said, like, we just, we all knew in our hearts the band was done. No one thought they were going to come back from this. They and they were, and it was cool. And they, you know, they just whatever he needed and what he needed to do was take a 55,000 mile motorcycle trip all through North and Central America. I mean, he just became a nomad on his motorcycle. He loved that no one recognized him the entire time. He was just a guy that was really important for him. And he would communicate to his loved ones, including Lee and Lifeson, with postcards and stuff. And it was this situation where, of course, they're all like kind of shitting their pants about this in the sense of they just want their friend to be okay. And want to make sure he's uh, alive. So there was a network of people that if they got a postcard, if they got even maybe a phone call, they would hit let everyone know. You know, of course, this is pre-internet era. They'd have to like call everybody, be like, he's okay. He's in Mexico. You know what I mean? And um, 
you know, I just got a postcard. So it was just this really fragile, sad, devastating time for everybody, especially Neil Peart. And eventually he comes out of it, uh, somewhat with the help of a photographer named Carrie Nuttall, who he fell in love with and married in late 2000. And he also, around that time, he slowly starts to play drums again. And I really love, like, you can just tell how much Getty Lee and, and Lifeson care about him. That they were just like, let's, you know, let's just get together and we'll play some songs. Like, no, you know, we no intention of making another album, no intention of playing live again. But like, how about we just, we start here. And it was really like, like a physical rehab, it seemed like, but instead applied to him drumming in the band. I mean, it was like he had to almost start over in all these ways. And slowly but surely, they start playing their songs again, make writing new songs, and they finally actually eventually get into the uh, studio to make Vapor Trails. Peart said, We laid out no parameters, no goals, no limitations, only that we would make a relaxed, civilized approach to the project. Take a relaxed, civilized approach to the project. And they did it. And it's kind of miraculous. I mean, I, you know, I mean, and, and it's amazing, like really speaks to the power of, you know, what music can be, the healing power of music. And I know that sounds like fucking whatever, but I think it's true sometimes like art and, and also sometimes like, you just got to go, man. You just got to get on a fucking motorcycle and, you know, and and I love that his friends and family supported him through that and knew that he needed that. It's after that hiatus and the re-release and the release of these albums that like Rush almost like has a second renaissance yeah. or at least like the enough people. It helps to go. It helps to go away for a little while, yeah. too. Honestly, like it was kind of the best thing they could do was make people miss them. Is then they got to return in this huge way. They embarked on the R30 30th anniversary tour, which was a huge production and is legendary among Rush fans as a giant celebration. Packed arenas, multiple generations of fans, you know, fathers taking their grandkids to see. That's not how families work, but you get what I mean. <laughs> it was... Uh, at at some point, this is I, this is just too funny to me to not mention. But at some point during these this era, uh, a new system is adopted where Getty Lee's bass is plugged directly into the uh, PA system of the venues mm. that they're touring at, and he starts to and he notices that the stage is now kind of off balance because uh, like Lifeson still has this wall of guitar amps to help him with his sound, but now there's nothing behind Getty. And so to even things out, Getty starts just throwing random appliances behind him. (laughs) On one tour, it was uh, washing machines that were actively spinning with laundry. Uh, On one of the later tours, he had full decks of rotisserie chicken roasters behind him, full of chicken. That's why that's there. Yeah, (laughs) Just to fill the visual space that his amps used to go in. That is so funny. And uh, he would... The tour would then give out the cooked chickens to local homeless shelters and food pantries. Nice. Uh, when they were done. That's amazing. So, yeah, this tour, by the way, is banger. Like, they, they're going to places they'd never been before around the world. They had no, they're like, they had no idea they had an audience in certain parts of the world that they did. And, uh, you know, I think this is around the time they do the Rio show, right? Mm-hmm. That crazy, it's like, what is it, 60,000 people? So it was more people they've ever performed for in their entire lives. And you watch the the excitement of the what just what look up footage of this show and there is a live album by the way in the discography as well of, from that show that's fantastic. I mean, and what's the best part about it is considered one of the best live Rush uh, concert albums. 
is it's really all because of the audience because you hear them the the screaming from the audience and the singing along to the songs that energy is so incredible and so inspiring and it's amazing that they had that at this point i mean this is what in the early to mid 2000s they're they're achieving these like incredible levels of fame and and or at least success and you know a revitalization and also i mean i mentioned it up top but Rolling Stone always kind of turned their back on them. They were never invited to the cool kid party. They hadn't been on American television in 30 years when they made their appearance on the Colbert Report in 2008. And, uh, of course, the film cameo in 2009's uh, I Love You, Man, that you mentioned as well. I mean... That was like, I mean, they were never a part of the, the the popular lexicon in that way. And all of a sudden, they kind of find themselves, it's like it's okay to finally like Rush. Because enough nerds reached a high, you know, uh, the South Park guys would talk yep. about how much they loved yep. Rush and would contribute like animations to the tour. And did a parody. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, exactly. It became cool. And I, this is true. Actually, this was kind of the nerd renaissance too, right? Yeah. Mid 2000s, right? Mid to late. I guess it was more the 2010s, but still it's starting here in the late 2000s. 2000s, right? In 2008, 2009. It's tangential to what we've always called loot crate culture. Yes. Like Nerdist is big and like, yeah, all that stuff. It finally becomes hip to be square. And like people are really starting to embrace it, you know, and and all these ways, Star Wars and everything, video games. It's finally cool to be into all this shit. And I think that that is what finally allowed Rush to be taken a little more seriously, or at least put a little bit more in the limelight, shall we say, in America. And uh, they put two more albums out during this period, uh, Snakes and Arrows and Clockwork Angels. Um, But after the Clockwork Angels tour, Lifeson wanted to take some time off. This is the end of 2013. A year later, they hit the road for the R40 tour. That's in 2015. Lifeson stated this may be the final large-scale rush tour. He was suffering from psoriatic arthritis. I'm sure I said that wrong, but he was suffering from arthritis. Pert was dealing with tendinitis. And so it's just getting difficult for them to play like a world tour on that scale every day, you know, every night. I mean, at this point, they're in their 60s and like you, you know, pushing 70. And think of just literally how much kinetic energy how many just raw calorie output yeah. neil peart is supposed to put out on these drums think about a think about poor getty lee's voice yeah. like all those goddamn high notes like uh, one after the other after the other yeah. like just day in day out like and so yeah the r40 concerts uh tour was kind of them being like this might. This is probably going to be the last one. Let's make it count. Later that year, Peart announced his retirement, and a few years later, after that, Lifeson confirmed that quote: "We're basically done. After 41 years, we felt it was enough." Then, in January of 2020, Neil Peart passed away after quietly battling brain cancer. I remember when this happened. This was. This really did cause quite a ripple in. Uh, in the the music world and, you know, on social media, the outpouring. I mean, the amount of people inspired by the drumming of Neil Peart is incredible. I mean, he really is. If you get into drums, he really is one of the probably going to be a focal point at some point for you in terms of just a fascination with his abilities. I mean, he was so he was able to I- perfectly isolate his upper and lower body in, in, in ways to create these unbelievable uh, drum rhythms and, and, and melodies and, and things that like essentially his, his upper half had to operate differently from his lower half to create it. He has a really cool like how-to in terms of the way he constructs his solos to be more palatable for a, a general audience. 
uh, and he, he picks apart. Um, I think he uses a solo from his uh, R30 concert uh, and picks it apart on like how he he approaches drums in terms of that sort of thing and and his whole process and you know he's just always going to be one of the top guys in in the drumming world especially the rock and roll drumming world and so yeah uh, finally I think got a lot of credit where credit was due around that time and uh, I think really started finally got you know I was I was on uh, his Wikipedia page it said like um, he was also named like one of the worst lyricists by like some magazine I was like first of all like rude don't put that on the <laughs> Wikipedia page but also like. I don't know, man. I don't think uh, I. You know, I get why one might uh, roll some eyes at some of those lyrics, but I think he also reached some major highs lyrically, and also he's the best drummer in the world and the fucking lyricist for most of the songs of the band. I mean, it's just so insane, you know. And so, uh, uh, Lee stated in a Rolling Stone interview, Getty Lee did, uh, "That's over. I'm still am very proud of what we did." I don't know that what I will do again in music, and I'm sure Al doesn't, whether it's together, apart, or whatever. But the music of Rush is always part of us, and I would never hesitate to play one of those songs in the right context. But at the same time, you have to give respect to what the three of us with Neil did together. And I mean, honestly, they're just everyone. I don't. I don't even think they needed to say it. Everyone knew there was no Rush without Neil. Yeah. Like there's just it's not. It, I, if if you try, I, and I would fucking. Uh, feel so bad for the drummer that tried to fill those shoes. That's not going to happen. Like <laughs> you can replace like you can replace like uh, uh, you know maybe a lead singer or something like that in, in, in another band, a bassist. But, but like, no, part of Ru- what makes Rush Rush is it's the product of these three guys. Yeah. We are pushing the limit of what these three guys can do, and these three guys created something that it sounds and emotions and uh just just environments like sensory environments that you it would take an an orchestra of people to otherwise do yeah and so if you take one of those guys out it's not the same project whatever you want to call it it's not rush and they're all so skilled i mean just to match his drumming they had to be that skilled so it's completely true i mean g- Getty Lee is also considered one of the greatest bassists of all time. Yes, and I of think all time. One, another thing of the Rush window is if you are playing bass or drums where you you can get drowned out. You know the bass player, what the bass player as lead vocalist frontman is already such like a proud thing for the bassists of the world. Right. I loved seeing it. Like just watching the documentary. I know rush is so important because all of my favorite people were vouching for them in that doc. Les Claypool from Mana Primus, one of my favorite bands of all time was on there talking about how amazing that band was. Jack Black is so funny in that thing, talking about it. He's so, it's so great. Uh, Dave Grohl. There were so many, like, uh, just amazingly talented and warm-hearted people, I feel like. People known uh, to be um, just good people sitting there talking about how much this band impacted him. I will say, in January of 2021, Lifeson confirmed that he and Lee had been in talks about making music together again, so we shall see. That's pretty that the most recent I've seen. But uh, either way, those guys deserve a break, though. So I hope they enjoy it. And it'd be great to see them on stage again. Maybe they can do something like Life After Rush or something and uh, get to play again. But yeah, just unbelievable story. Incredible band. And just a story of, hey, if you're kind to each other and you work with each other and you take, take it really seriously and just work your ass off on it, you can achieve unbelievable things. As in, in a group of people, as as a trio, as a 
quartet. And uh, it just seemed like they always they always kept a good mentality about their approach. And they always pivoted when they needed to pivot. They always acknowledged when it was a struggle, when it was not becoming not fun, and changed direction. And I think that that is the most impressive thing about them. I think the most impressive thing about them is their fans. Yeah. I think uh, the amount of people that came out of the woodwork that... Uh, I when I was like, hey, I need help with like rush stuff. The amount of people that gave of their time um, on the Discord, I have to shout out Man of Leaves, uh, who has his own Twitch. Go to Twitch.tv Man of Leaves, who did an uh, album by album breakdown, wow. unbidden, and sent it to us to like help guide us on this episode. Um, uh, Alex Nikki on Twitter uh, came out and like found old footage and like talked about the family atmosphere and how, you know, Rush fans help each other out and like uh, help support charities that the guy that the band members focus on and how like just how deep the rabbit hole goes and how much depth and joy this discography has brought to so many people. Mm -hmm. It was truly intense to witness. Well, there you go. That's our episode on Rush. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. I had so much fun with this one. I love the music ones because it just sort of takes over my week in this fun way. Uh, All right. If you want to check us out further, support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do bonus weekly episodes for just $5 a month. And for $15, join us on the Sunday study session. I'm sad I had to miss this one because of our baby shower, uh, which was quite a quite a joy though to experience as well. But uh, I did miss out on the on the um, on the fan gush, and uh, it's always a good time over there on Discord. You get access to that every Sunday at five PM ET. We uh, we have a little sesh to cover whatever topic we are researching that week, and it's always a blast. And uh, yeah, uh, check me out twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I'm doing Monday, Tuesday, Friday streams. Come see me. Come find me. It's always a good time. And that's all I got. Jake! Follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung to read all my thoughts and plops and get little uh, nuggets of uh, research materials that I've been discovering throughout the week. And uh, hey, your boy J-Dog, he's a VTuber now. He's doing it. We're doing it after the episode. I must experience the joys of VTubing. Uh, Go to Puppet Jared over on YouTube. Send it a sub. Uh, We haven't done the uh, star-studded uh, debut stream, but there's some test streams up there. Uh, uh, give it a like, give it a view, and we're gonna we're gonna take this thing to the heights of virtual chaos. All right, I will reign in hell as a cartoon purple man. <laughs> I love it, and always remember: never stop bruising and keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. 
With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.